would it take for the entire world to believe that the man of sin had defeated God and Jesus Christ? Well, I think that is a question most people don't even want to ask. We're happy to just believe that people at that time are just going to be so foolish that they'll just go along with whatever, just because of the fact that the man of sin is claiming to be God, and they'll just want to believe that. They don't want to believe that there's going to be a very convincing event that makes it seem like he is truly God, or greater than our God, and defeats Jesus Christ in some way. That's unthinkable. But that's exactly what this chapter is going to explore, because when we really study the nitty-gritty of Daniel and Thessalonians and these other prophecies about what the final end will look like, revolving around the abomination of desolation and the glorious return of Christ, it's not going to be pretty. In this chapter of Maybe Everyone is Wrong, Revelations, Conspiracy, and the Kingdom of Heaven, we're going to set up the idea of the marriage supper and show how so many important prophetic events tie together at the exact same moment called the Day of the Lord. And I trust you're going to handle the controversial theory here in good stride because you know that I'm just trying to present a hypothesis here that accounts for things that nobody else is even really looking at. Chapter 14 Marriage Supper Begun to Reign After the lesson on Babylon slash Jerusalem provided by the angel, John sees the heavens rejoicing. Once again, people in heaven talk about future events as if they were already in the past. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged the blood of his servants, shed by her hand. And a second one said, Hallelujah! Her smoke goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. Revelation 19, 1-5 on a spiritual level, these things are guaranteed and destined to occur. Not only is God's word impossible to contradict, but these events are still part of the seventh seal broken by Jesus and God's immutable plan for the world. The judgment is therefore the equivalent of the actual event. It is only our flawed human minds that create room for doubt once God has spoken. But those in heaven have no such illusions, and so they celebrate as soon as they see what is declared by God as if it were done already. 
Babylon, the corrupt version of Jerusalem, operated by a satanic elite, will be destroyed to the point where its smoke goes up forever, and it will never be found again. The vengeance that the Christian martyrs called for back in the fifth seal is finally enacted. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty has begun to reign. Revelation 19, verse 6. According to the heavens, it is only at this point that the Lord has begun to reign on earth. Jesus is still in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, waiting for the harvest to be complete and the winepress to be treaded. In literal earthly terms, the earthquake that killed 7,000 men may have been as recent as a few months. The seven vials might be poured out rapidly, and the false prophet might quickly respond to the plagues by gathering his new kings to assault Jerusalem as the traditional ruling class watches in horror. The biggest earthquake in history splits the city into three parts, and Satan's army is ready to invade. The Lord has begun to reign in the sense that Jesus is present on earth and coordinating world events to orchestrate the day of the Lord. Bridal Purification Ancient Hebrew tradition and law regarding marriage worked differently than today. Marriage began when a girl accepted a man as her husband and her father signs a legal contract for them. This could be done many years before they are even mature adults, binding them as a married couple long before they hit puberty or can consummate their relationship sexually. Child brides were normal, but consummation was a different story. Burdensome requirements for the husband can be stipulated in the contract before consummation was allowed, such as paying the father a certain amount of money, called the dowry. This can take years and allows the girl to grow up while the man works to satisfy the demands of her father. Joseph and Mary were married, but were not having sex. They were waiting to consummate when God gave her a child and created the controversy around a secret virgin impregnation, and Joseph considered divorcing her privately. There are many great commentaries on how this parallels God's covenants and messianic promises. But for now, let's remember that purification and being washed, immersed in water, is part of the bridal ceremonies. Baptism symbolizes this being done spiritually, as the church is the bride of Christ, and therefore must be washed. But remember that it also symbolizes our death and rebirth. Dying and being washed pure are the same thing. Let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad, 
and let us give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. Revelation 19, verse 7. Here the paradox becomes perfect. The heavens are exceedingly glad that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and consider it to be a bridal preparation. They know Zion must be redeemed by judgment. All evil spirits, conspirators, and satanic followers, including the false prophet and some manifestation of the beast itself, will gather themselves together in one place and attempt to destroy God's people, his city, and the Messiah together. It will make perfect sense to these evil people because they will again believe in the Jeremiah 31.37 loophole being fulfilled. They think they can destroy Israel and Christ, and that the giant earthquake that divided the city into three parts is proof that God has abandoned his covenant. Little do they know that God considers the city to be nothing more than Babylon until it is destroyed. And to her it was granted that she should be dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Revelation 19, 8 to 9. The city will be erased, stripped naked, eaten, burned, and demolished. But it will afterward be clothed in fine linen of saints doing righteous deeds. The smoldering ruins of Jerusalem will be considered perfect and pure by God, because no amount of architecture, temples, sacrifices, gold, or glorious earthly things are pleasant to him anymore. We know this from Isaiah, where he promised to never heal them again until they were utterly destroyed. For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against Jehovah, to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom, they hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have done evil unto themselves. Isaiah 3, verses 8 to 9. God's righteous hatred of Jerusalem's worldly glory cannot be overstated. He despises the arrogance, the splendor, and the harlotry of the ungodly city, and promises to strip it all away and reduce it to nothing. Moreover, Jehovah said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. 
Therefore, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and Jehovah will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, and the calls, and the crescents, the pendants. Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she shall be desolate and sit upon the ground. Isaiah three, sixteen to 26 In that day, the day of the Lord, the marriage supper, the battle of Armageddon, the rapture, the first resurrection, shall the branch of Jehovah, Jesus Christ and his followers, be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof, by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning. And Jehovah will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory shall be spread a covering and there shall be a pavilion for a shade in the daytime from the heat and for a refuge, and for a covert from the storm and from rain. Isaiah 4, 2-6 God wants nothing more than to wash away the filth of Zion, and purge the blood of Jerusalem with justice and burning. It perfectly teaches how God can redeem his holy city by destroying its excesses and worldly glory, reducing it to nothing but a pure, clean, and simple restart point. The cloud of smoke and flaming fire which God will create has the same double meaning and beautiful paradox within it. The same fires and smoke that are going to rise up eternally from Babylon to show its judgment in Revelation are here categorized as a covering and a beautiful cloud of smoke in the day and a shining flame at night. So we see that the washing is part of the bridal preparation washing the city with fire, war, and desolation. God wants no reminders of her evil past and harlotry with the kings of men or its satanic covenant. The Abomination of Desolation 
As we saw in both Isaiah and Revelation, believers who escape Babylon slash Jerusalem will be blessed, and those who return and remain will be called holy. This holy seed and very small remnant will remain like a stump of a tree that is cut down once Jerusalem is wiped out by Satan's forces. They are called to flee, not to defend the doomed city. But this creates problems for our narrative. First, we are told that the 144,000 Israelite elect will follow wherever Jesus goes. And Jesus is still on Mount Zion, presumably in the third temple. So unless he leaves, they cannot possibly flee. Secondly, if they do stay with Jesus, how is it possible that they will avoid being killed when the city is made desolate and utterly destroyed? These questions require us to pay very close attention to multiple scattered accounts of the final confrontation. As a warning to the reader, what this hypothesis is about to explore is such an extreme, radical, controversial possibility that it will be guaranteed to offend at first glance. I ask that the reader bears in mind the celebratory event in heaven as evidence that God and the heavens see things very differently than we do today, due to our flawed preconceptions and their total confidence in God's plan. At no point in this narrative does God ever lose, and yet it must seem like God has lost entirely in order for various prophecies to be fulfilled. Jesus was put in full control over the world after his ascension, breaking the seals of the book in order to allow Satan to rise to power and eventually remove the church from this earth. This final battle is the climax of Satan's power on earth. Satan does not believe he struggles in vain, but much like with Christ's paradoxical victory on the cross, God will once again allow Satan to believe he has won, when in reality he has only sealed his own doom and given God a perfect opportunity to fulfill his mysteries. And to give you who are being afflicted rest, along with us, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus, from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall pay a penalty, eternal destruction, from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, whenever he comes in that day, to be glorified among his saints, and to be marveled among all those having believed, because our testimony among you was believed. Second Thessalonians 1 7-12.
Now, brothers, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we beseech you not to be quickly shaken from your mind, nor be disturbed, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is unveiled, the son of perdition, who exposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or every object of worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And now you know that which is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will continue until one comes out of the midst, and then the lawless one will be unveiled, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his, Jesus's, mouth, and will destroy by the brightness of his coming, whose coming, the man of sin's coming, is according to the working of Satan, with all powers and signs and lying wonders, and in all deception of unrighteousness among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And because of this, God will send them a strong delusion, in order for them to believe the lie, so that they all might be damned who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Second Thessalonians 2, 1-12 Clearly there must be a major falling away before Jesus can come back, and the man of sin must also be revealed. This means there can be no imminent or unexpected return, although we don't know what day these things will happen. But this man of sin is not the Antichrist, because that figure is a myth. The man of sin is not content with being compared to Christ, who is below God the Father as a servant, exalted through his obedience. Worse, he opposes God himself and exalts himself above God and everything that is worshipped in the universe. He will show himself to be God, not Christ. That's why he will sit in the throne of the third temple, as if he were God, which not even Jesus Christ would do. This wicked man will step out of the midst and deceive the world with wonders, powers, and signs. These miracles won't be trickery, but appear to be total victory over Christ. 
Not only that, but God himself will actually help this man of sin by sending a strong delusion over the people so that everyone who is not devoted to Jesus will fall for the lie. Certainly, whatever this man of sin does, it will involve an event that could only be described as blasphemous, if not impossible for a believer to accept, unless he had total faith in God's master plan. This will lead to the abomination of desolation, which Daniel prophesied and Jesus himself warned about. Although we're never told in Revelation when this abomination occurs, we can see the connections lining up. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, the third temple, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea, the 144,000 elect, and anyone else willing to listen, flee upon the mountains. Let the one on the housetop not go down to take the things out of his house, and let the one in the field not turn back to take his clothes. But woe to those women who are pregnant, and to the women nursing a baby in those days. But pray that your flight might not take place in winter, nor on the Sabbath. For then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until now, nor by any means shall be. And unless those days were cut short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be cut short by the rapture of the 144,000 elect. Then, if someone says to you, Look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will be raised up, and they will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you in advance. Therefore, if they should say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes out from the east and flashes to the west, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass may be, there the eagles will be gathered together. Matthew twenty four, fifteen to twenty eight. Jesus directly references the abomination of desolation written about by Daniel. So let's go there next. But before that, let's acknowledge that most people believe Daniel's prophecy was already fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. This doesn't make sense for many reasons. 
especially as we see how many different accounts discuss the same time period. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill, Zion, of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, for Jerusalem, which God has already decided is doomed, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved, and therefore deserve to know the tragic reality. Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, godly Israelites, and your holy city, Jerusalem, considered Babylon by God, to finish the transgression, satanic destruction, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity of Babylon, to bring in everlasting righteousness, millennial kingdom and resurrection, to seal both vision, revelation, and prophet, false prophet, or perhaps prophecy, and to anoint a most holy place, the purged Jerusalem. Daniel nine twenty to twenty four. This clearly has never happened yet. Everlasting righteousness doesn't exist for the holy city and Daniel's people today. They continue in vast majority to reject Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Babylon is yet to be destroyed, and therefore Jerusalem's sins are not atoned for. The transgression of Satan's assault has not even begun. Remember, Daniel was specifically praying to God about his people and Jerusalem's Mount Zion. The discussion is about those things, not some abstract theology or change of topic. That's why Gabriel was quickly sent to put a stop to Daniel's plea. Because God loves Daniel greatly, but what he's asking for is totally impossible. There will be no mercy for Jerusalem. We already know from Isaiah that the city must be destroyed before it can be redeemed. The city which Daniel loves so much is the same city God hates. Therefore, God is provoked to respond quickly because he does not like to see his servant Daniel making pleas for a place that is already doomed to utter desolation. Daniel doesn't understand that Jerusalem is considered Sodom in God's eyes 
and must be burned down. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, after the earthquake that destroys 10% of the city and kills 7,000, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, Jesus on Mount Zion with the 144,000, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time, as the city is hit with the biggest earthquake in history, dividing it into thirds, and Satan besieges the city in war. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one, Jesus Christ, shall be cut off, Hebrew, karath, meaning consumed or destroyed, and shall have nothing, Hebrew, ayin, meaning not exist. And the people of the prince who is to come, the man of sin, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood of war, and to the end there shall be war, as some believers try to defend Jerusalem. Desolations are decreed, meaning Daniel's plea is not feasible, and he the man of sin, shall make a strong covenant, the great delusion, with many, not just the 144,000, for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end, Christ's vengeance from heaven in glory with his army, is poured out on the desolator. Daniel nine twenty-five to 27 It may seem completely blasphemous and impossible to consider that Jesus would come back to earth and be killed again. But it makes perfect sense when we consider the full strategy God is using to allow Satan to believe he has won and fulfilled the Jeremiah 31:37 loophole, among other things. There would be no greater proof of Satan's triumph than destroying Jesus again, erasing him from existence in the middle of his own temple, in front of his own people. People assume that Jesus cannot come back to earth unless it is in the clouds, but that's not true. The Bible doesn't forbid Jesus from returning. It only promises that he will eventually return again in the clouds like he ascended. The second coming tradition term is misleading, therefore. His triumphant return in the clouds could just as well be his third coming. 
This is why it's so beautiful that Satan himself misunderstands the prophecy and will think he has won. Jesus won't truly die, of course, but it will signify to his followers that they need to run and wait for his triumphant return in the clouds. God frequently warns those final believers to flee the city and not try to defend Jesus or prevent the abomination of desolation. For Satan to believe he has achieved the Jeremiah 31:37 loophole once again and attained victory over Christ and God's covenant with Israel, the victory must be even more convincing than killing the two witnesses. This could be extra convincing if the false prophet, the demons, and the Gnostic cultists have all been predicting these things. The giant earthquake and the apparent defeat of everything God holds sacred will certainly convince the satanic conspiracy that they have managed to beat God himself, which will lead to the man of sin stepping up into the role of God in the temple. This perfectly completes the Babylon metaphor, since it will be like Nimrod or the ancient Babylonian god-kings who believed they could surpass God and do anything they wanted with no fear. As for the death of Jesus, it's very possible that his body will not be harmed at all, but that being cut off will mean vanishing instead. As the text describes, he won't even exist, on earth, that is. We know that in his resurrected body, Jesus could teleport from place to place or hide his identity from anyone he chose. He's not at all limited to mortal logic. It might look to everyone as if Jesus was eradicated by the man of sin's power. But in fact, it would be God's plan to allow Satan to take credit and celebrate prematurely. The supposed death of Jesus in the temple will be the abomination of desolation that triggers the warning to flee Jerusalem. The strong delusion will be completed here as well, and the man of sin will truly believe he is above God and sit on the throne making a deal with many about his new false religion and need to be worshipped. Evidently, the sacrifices and temple offerings will even be allowed to continue for half a week, although they will be offered to the man of sin himself, since he will sit on the throne as if he is God. When he betrays this new covenant, he will hope to ensnare the elect and have them all put to death horribly. One would hope that he cuts the week short because so many God-fearing people 
will think better of it and flee the city, knowing that Jesus is still alive, and the man of sin is nothing but a pathetic loser waiting to be destroyed. The wrath and cruelty of the man of sin when he does decide to attack and destroy will become the greatest tribulation in human history. We can certainly hope that the holy people will be long gone and on the run when that happens. Timing of Christ's Return Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined by converting to Christ and being killed. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand that God's covenant is intact, that Christ did not truly die, and that he will come back in glory with his army. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, due to some disaster perhaps, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, the man of sin taking the throne as God, there shall be 1,290 days, 3.5 years. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, 45 days later. Daniel 12, 10 This is intended for the 144,000 elect to track, not us. They will literally be reading Daniel and can count the days from the time that the burnt offering is taken away. At that point, they can expect the abomination of desolation to be set up in three and a half years. They will want to stay with Jesus and only flee the city once the abomination of desolation occurs. And at that point, they will have 45 days to flee and escape the greatest tribulation. But anyone who listens to the warning and wants to flee in advance could theoretically just leave and wait for the right time to return, abandoning the city. The blessing that will be given to those who wait and arrive at the 1,335 days, will be the marriage supper. This chapter is focused on. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Revelation 19, 9. The Rapture-Resurrection Connection Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, 
and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52 The 144,000 must flee for 45 days upon seeing the abomination of desolation. But after this, they will be gathered in the clouds with Jesus, after the last trumpet. This is how God will cut short the days and protect them. We know that the 144,000 must go where Jesus is. So it's fitting that when Jesus returns in the clouds, that's where they will be gathered. Meanwhile, the man of sin, acting as God, will have his own Christs who deceive and lure. They may lure confused, scared believers into torture or demonic agony if they aren't sure if the Jeremiah 31:37 loophole has been fulfilled or not. Whatever the tribulation looks like, Jesus told us it would be the worst in history. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This, as opposed to the modest form he will take on Mount Zion. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, the last trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24, 29-31 This is perfectly logical. After the tribulation, we have a final trumpet, because the trumpet itself is the signal to cut short the days and signal the angels to gather the elect. It coincides with Jesus coming in the clouds as lightning flashes from east to west, and the earth will mourn. And at that time shall Michael stand up, and the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, the same time Jesus was describing. And at that time thy people, Israelites, shall be delivered, Every one that shall be found written in the book, the elect. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, the first resurrection, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, the second resurrection. 
And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, receive new spiritual bodies, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever. Daniel 12, 1-3 Notice that this cannot be any of the past resurrections or miracles that brought people back from the dead, such as the incidents found in the New Testament. Simply ask yourself, was their resurrection to everlasting life? Did they shine like stars forever and ever? The answer is no. Those who were brought back from the dead, like Lazarus, or those after Christ's crucifixion, died again. This passage speaks to everlasting life to some, and everlasting shame to others. It has not happened. God is therefore telling Daniel that the salvation of the Israelites is going to correspond with the first resurrection and eternal life in new spiritual bodies that never die. The language of shining bodies is not random or coincidental, but a very real fact of what the resurrection will look like. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44 And before this, Paul tells us about how the resurrection will happen in a certain order at Christ's coming, not a separate event. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians fifteen, twenty-one to 26 Thus we know that the following things must coincide together. The greatest tribulation in history ending suddenly. The days being cut short for the sake of the elect. Israelites being delivered. 
who are written in the book. Christ's return in the clouds. The gathering up of the elect to the clouds to be with Christ. Transformation of those who remain at Christ's return. The first resurrection. And when we continue to read Revelation, we will see that this all coincides with the battle of the Lord's hosts against Satan's armies at Jerusalem. Do you really trust God's prophecy? If you were to see the things in this chapter, would it shake your faith? The Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-seven loophole, if that actually seems to happen, that God forsakes Israel, Jerusalem gets destroyed, Satan's army invades, and they even seem to kill our Lord Jesus, would that ruin your faith? Not mine, because I believe in God's prophecy, and I'm ready to accept even something as extreme as this hypothesis. And that's the point here. Be ready for anything, any level of deception. And stay tuned, because we're going to keep exploring where this goes from here. And it's going to get good. Good.